everybody. Nicholas Ward here. Welcome to the Roundtable podcast presented by the Dividend Kings. Today I have Adam Gallus and Brad Thomas on the line with me and we are pleased to present uh, this week's topic which is why we avoid MREITs. This is a subject that many of our subscribers are interested in. A lot of our uh, you know subscribers are looking for high yields and obviously the MREIT space is known for that. However, uh, as you will quickly find out, I think we are fairly bearish on this space overall, and you will find out why. I am sort of quarterbacking this week's podcast because this is an area of the market that I have avoided, and uh, therefore it's not something that I'm overly familiar with. As you guys know, I focus on reliably increasing dividends, and uh, that those are just not something that you generally find in the MREIT space. Uh, we all, I do have some data to support that later, but uh, in the meantime, I do want to pass it over to Brad Thomas. He is our REIT expert, obviously, and he will uh, introduce this industry to the subscribers and begin uh, this conversation. Great. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate that. And uh, thank you, everybody, for, for joining us today. Um, so, yes, the title is Why We Avoid MREITs. Uh, we're not going to debunk REITs today uh, because I think it's important that you know all the REITs should not be painted by the same brush and so first at a very high level I want to explain to some of you who may not be as familiar there are really three different categories um, or subcategories within the uh, REIT universe there are the equity REITs that own and operate uh, income producing properties like office buildings shopping centers apartments those are the the, the, the common uh, property sectors, and they obviously lease out their space to tenants. And after paying out the expenses with the operating properties, these equity REITs uh, pay out the bulk of their income to shareholders and dividends. And again, REITs must pay out at least 90% of their taxable income in the form of dividends to become considered a REIT. Then we have the next universe, of, which is called mortgage REITs and the topic of our uh, conversation today. Now, mortgage REITs, again, should be split up into two different groups, um, commercial mortgage REITs and residential mortgage REITs. Now, they're both mortgage REITs, uh, which means they provide financing for income-producing real estate by purchasing or initiating mortgages and mortgage-backed securities to earn income from the interest. They help provide essential liquidity for the real estate market and typically focus on either, again, residential or commercial markets. Although some invest in RMBS and CMBS, which are mortgage-backed securities. Now, let me be clear here. We cover commercial mortgage REITs on IREIT. Um, we have uh, roughly, I wanna say maybe 12 to 13, maybe 14 names, uh, commercial mortgage REITs in our coverage spectrum. Uh, we do not cover the residential mortgage REITs, and we'll get into that here in just uh, a few minutes here of why we don't do that. But the reason we do cover commercial mortgage REITs, first of all, it, it gives us somewhat of an advantage as analysts because we cover commercial real estate. So we have talking to many of the commercial real estate uh, CEOs and management teams, we have really deep insight into operation fundamentals within the various real estate operating uh, seg sectors. So for example, we cover a company called Ladder Capital, which, which has, has made investments in hotels and office buildings and uh, things of that nature, primarily office and some hotel. 
um, and, and others. They're fairly diversified. But because we cover those companies, we, we, we were able to get insight into a potential uh, defaults and where we see uh, more risk uh, uh, unfolding. So we try to look at this holistically. And the reason, one reason we cover that sector, commercial mortgage rates, because we, we, you know, that's within our defined circle of confidence. And I think that's a, that's a key word here because it is within commercial real estate is within our circle of confidence. confidence. Now, the, the other thing that we don't like about the commercial mortgage REITs and certainly residential, uh, and most analysts and investors would agree, is there's just not that level of transparency. I can't go into a commercial mortgage REIT to see exactly what properties they have loans on. They keep all that stuff pretty close to the vest. Same thing for residential mortgage REIT. So we just don't know a lot, you know, the, 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 the actual individual uh, loans that they're taking out, what properties they are. Um, so it does take a high degree of understanding of that space. So those are at a high level, those are the things I wanted to, to point out. And again, commercial mortgage REITs, and the third, third thing I want to mention about commercial mortgage REITs, uh, we consider this sector to be almost like a, a preferred uh, plus, plus some growth. So obviously a preferred is known for just you know, uh, spitting out income. It's a pure income investment. Uh, there's not really a whole uh, high degree of, of appreciation, uh, total return opportunities with preferreds. However, we've, we've been actually done very well with commercial mortgage REITs. Um, but obviously this pandemic has made it very volatile for many of these mortgage lenders. And so we've been very uh, uh, conservative uh, with regard to uh, recommendations within that uh, sector, although we've, we've you know, been pleased with, with results uh, thus far. And most commercial mortgage REITs have really been able to weather the storm. There hasn't been any bankruptcies. There was a fear of bankruptcies and liquidity drying out. But so far in this cycle, uh, they've, they've held up fairly well. And most of those commercial mortgage REITs, by the way, came out as a result of the uh, Great Recession, the, um, the latest uh, global financial crisis, uh, when banks quit lending, banks were going out of business. And so the commercial mortgage REIT stepped in, primarily the private equity firms, Starwood, TPG, um, Blackstone, um, KKR, all these big private equity firms formed uh, commercial mortgage REITs to fill a void to provide funding for commercial real estate landlords across the country. And that that's held up pretty well. And by the way, I'm covering all that in my new book, The Intelligent Reed Investor. Um, but before I go back over to Adam, I want to say one other thing. I, I, I do a lot of public speaking, haven't lately because of the pandemic. But uh, I remember um, a while back, I was explaining to an audience, you know, the difference between, a, you know, investing in an equity REIT uh, and a, uh, and a mortgage REIT. And uh, the explanation went like this, you know, if we're both in, if we're sitting, all of us are sitting in Florida and we want to take a trip to the West Coast and we want to, you know, have a really smooth car, smooth ride, sleep well at night, stress-free, no volatility or little volatility uh, and make, you know, fair return on that. Um, you, can, you can get a, you know, a nice, uh, you know, Cadillac drive straight from Florida all the way through Alabama, Texas, all the way through the Sunshine States and end up in California and without a whole lot of stress. And, and you're gonna end up with a, a return, certain return. And we'll talk about specifics in a second. Or you could take the other vehicle, which is the mortgage REIT vehicle. And you could have a, 
a not so good car. Um, and I won't throw out any, any bad names, but you know, maybe a, a car that, that none of us would drive. And we're going to go all the way up to Canada and we're going to go back down. We're going to zigzag across the place. And, and we don't know where the roadmap's going, but eventually maybe a couple weeks later, we end up in California. And then when you look at this, when you look at the two and you measure the two, you're like, wow, why didn't I take that? Why didn't I hit the easy button when I have better returns, lower volatility, lower headaches, and you know you sleep well at night and that's really how i would at a high level describe equity reits versus mortgage reits because at the end of the day they're outperforming we've gone back and looked at this sector you know um, through multiple decades and equity reits do outperform i promise you not every year and there are certain outliers within the mortgage reit space that have done very well but in general in, in general equity reits are going to outperform mortgage reits less stress less volatility uh, and better results. So from that being said, I'm going to turn it over to Adam and uh, hear what he has to say on the, on the subject. Thanks, Brad. So uh, I'm sure as, as Nick will probably comment on, you know, my, my focus and the focus for many Dividend Kings members is we want maximum safe income that can help fund our, our goals in retirement, give us a comfortable retirement that we can depend on throughout the economic cycle. And so uh, obviously, there, you know, every industry will have a various uh, different cash flow profile and, and, you know, based on how stable those cash flows are and, and how easy it is to grow uh, that uh, uh, earnings and cash flow and thus dividends over time. And the problem with uh, Emery's is that, you know, it's easy to, especially in a low interest rate environment, to get suckered in on, on those double digit yields. For example, Annalee Capital is the oldest Emory. Uh, it's a main, main, primarily focused on residential mortgages. And it's basically, since its IPO, it's averaged 11.7% yield, which you can understand why that might seem attractive. That's almost 1% a month on average. Now, it doesn't actually pay monthly, but you know it comes out to 1% a month. And it seems so easy. How can you possibly lose if you have, you know, it, it, uh, getting almost 12%? Well, of course, the problem is that, you know, the difference between a safe high yield and a sucker yield all comes down to the fundamentals and the stability of those earnings. And, you know, the problem is basically threefold is that uh, with, with Emirates, as Brad alluded to, just like uh, uh, just like uh, REITs in general, they have to pay out 90% of their core earnings or, or their taxable earnings. And so generally their core earning payout ratios are above 90%, they retain very little. And so they have to use a whole lot of leverage. Some of these residential uh, mortgage REITs, they're running six times leverage. For commercial, it's generally less. Uh, commercial on generally, they, they tend to yield, uh, at least pre-pandemic and before the dividend cuts. And I should point out 74% of uh, REITs cut or suspended their dividends. So far, just one, Arbor, uh, has raised it so far. And so the, the issue is they have very little uh, safety buffer if anything goes wrong. And the issue is with equity REITs, you own these commercial properties. You have those stable tenant bases. That cash flow is generally leased under uh, long-term uh, anywhere from five to 15 years. And so you have that stable cash flow. So uh, you, the uh, equity REITs, for example, they can safely use anywhere from five to six times debt to EBITDA, and that's fine. 
Now, the problem is that these uh, mortgage REITs, they don't have income producing assets that they can rely on. These are generally three to five year uh, loan packages that they own that will eventually roll off. And of course, as we've seen with, with bonds, when, uh, when bonds mature, you have to reinvest that into whatever the uh, you know, current yielding that the market will offer in terms of yield. Well, you know, interest rate spreads, basically they completely dominate because these are such highly leveraged uh, vehicles that if interest rates move a little bit uh, against them, that can have a significant uh, impact on earnings. And so, for example, looking at Annaly, which actually is one of the highest qu uh, quality names, the problem is that over the last 20 years, their earnings have grown at negative 0.9%. And not surprisingly, as Peter Lynch uh, and Ben Graham point out, over the long term, share prices will track it. It's uh, in terms of share price, annually is down 0.9% annually for the last 20 years. Now it has generated 7.7% total returns. Uh, but however, the problem is, as I pointed out, it's averaged an 11.7% yield. So how can that be? If the price is basically down 1%, shouldn't have investors earn 10%? Well, the problem is, if you look at the dividend, it's extremely variable. For example, in 2002, it was paying $2.67 in dividends. That then fell to $0.57 cents in 2006. Then it went back up to $2.65 in 2010. And it's been sliding very steadily. Uh, down to $1.20 in 2015. Uh, in 2019, they cut it to $1.05. This year, analysts expect $0.91 cents and then falling to $0.88 cents in 2012. And so the thing to remember is uh, the same with many CEFs and uh, high-yielding ETFs is that you know if a dividend isn't covered by cash flow, it's return of capital, not returns on your capital. And so the, the problem is that uh, oftentimes the uh, over time these dividends become unsustainable and they have to be cut. And so what that might look like a 12% yield uh, to start out with might potentially fall to something like four or 5% of your yield on cost. And another uh, major issue they have is that most of these things are externally managed. Meaning for example, an equity REIT is basically management is employed by the company. They work for shareholders. They're fiduciary, uh, fiduciaries mean they have a responsibility to uh, do right by shareholders, maximize shareholder value over time. That's not the case with M, um, M REITs and mo even many commercial mortgage REITs. Basically management is, uh, the, it's uh, hired from an external company and they get paid based on a percentage of assets under management. Well, that can create a perverse incentive to grow assets as fast as possible so maximize their pay, even if it, do, it actually hurts core EPS, book value per share, and dividends per share, the things that stock prices will track over time. And the third major problem is because of the, all these problems, the very cyclical nature of their uh, earnings and cash flow, they tend to trade at below book value. Well, the problem is that they, they can only take on so much leverage safely, so they have to issue shares. They have to sell new equity. Well, anytime you're selling equity below book value, you're decreasing book value per share, which is one of the main drivers of the stock prices. So it can create this downward spiral of the price you know, falling over time, raising the cost of capital, making it harder to generate any kind of positive EPS growth 
which is why many of these, most of these are so highly leveraged and essentially dry, uh, reliant on credit uh, spreads and the uh, various uh, interest rate spreads on the uh, assets they own. Well, the problem is, of course, that those uh, credit spreads will change over time. You can't really predict it. Peter Lynch famously said, nobody can predict interest rates uh, in the short term and even in the long term. If, if you could, you'd essentially become a billionaire. And there's not enough billionaires in the world indicating that very few people can correctly predict interest rates. And so you know, the point is that these are essentially highly speculative uh, vehicles that you can do well in the short term, but as far as uh, buy and hold investors concerned with generating stable income over time, it's simply not worth it. And I do want to uh, close out and, and I'll turn it back over to Nick for any questions he may have to lead the conversation, is that if you're looking for safe double digit yields, there are lots of ultra high yielding stocks. Uh, look, just looking at our Phoenix list right now, Magellan Midstream is yielding 11.2%. And that's the safest 11% yield on, on Wall Street. I just did a deep dive. We just bought it. I just did a daily blue chip deal video on it. Enterprise is the safest name in Midstream, yielding 10.7. Ultra is yielding 8.4, which is uh, more than many commercial uh, Emirates were yielding before the uh, pandemic. Pembina is yielding 8%. Enbridge is yielding 7.8. British American Tobacco 7.7. Prudential 6.4. And Bank of Nova Scotia 6.4. And so, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, uh, what if I just wanted to say own five or 10% in Emirates? You know, it's more speculative, but just something to generate really high yield. Well, the thing is, if you own, say, a 7%, which is the maximum risk cap recommendation we have on uh, any blue chip, that we recommend. If you own 7% in Magellan and 7% in Enterprise, now you have 14% exposure to the highest quality midstream names. So, you know, under the 15% industry rec recommendation cap that we recommend. And you're averaging an 11% yield that's very safe and is expected to grow at between 2 and 4% over time. That is something, something that Emirates simply cannot, by the very nature of their business model, cannot generate. So with that uh, introduction and my thoughts, I'll turn it over to Nick for any questions he might have in leading the discussion. Yeah, thanks, Adam and Brad. That's obviously great information. Uh, you know, as somebody, like I said, that's not doesn't cover this space closely, I'm certainly learning quite a bit. Uh, you know, coming back to one of the points Brad made, you know, one of the reasons that I have avoided this space is because of the lack of transparency. Uh, you know, I come back to the kind of Peter Lynch, buy what you know, uh, you know, sort of quote, I like to be able, I need to be able to understand how the businesses that I own are making the cash flows that they're making so that I can feel confident in my ability to, uh, you know, kind of predict dividend income moving forward. So Brad, I did want to ask a question to you. I'm looking at the IREIT ratings. I see that none of the, com the commercial uh, mortgage REITs that we cover at IREIT have a SWAN rating. They all have the SALSA ratings. Is there anything, is that due to the pandemic environment or can, is there anything that these companies could do to become swans or do you think they're sort of destined to be that sort of speculative salsa uh, moving forward? That's a good question. And, you know, Nick, here's the thing, you know, we, a swan, you know, it takes a lot to be a swan, you know, and we're, we're reevaluating our entire uh, coverage spectrum. We've got this new scoring model. Um, which we're going to really kind of triple down on the meaning of the swan, right? So 
Um, but but guys, it, I'm going to interrupt Brad real quick. A swan means sleep well at night. Sleep just well at night. Correct. correct. Yep. And it's an acronym. Of course, I didn't coin it, uh, but uh, certainly it's it's used quite a bit on on the Seeking Alpha site. And you know, obviously, this is a stress-free uh, pick. It's a stress-free stock that you and essentially it would be more of what I would consider a buy and hold stock. So when you think about that in terms of what Adam just talked about is really comes down to the, the income that the mortgage REITs generate. And this is residential and commercial, I might add, um, is not really as sustainable um, as, um, as, as the you know, equity universe. And, you know, it's almost like you've heard the saying, you're only as good as your last game, you know, and, and these guys have to continually um, you know, put new money to work to generate the spreads to be able to produce the earnings. Uh, and by the way, we, they don't use FFO because uh, that's another differentiator is uh, they, we don't have the depreciation. This is a lending, basically a lending business. So it's straight at, you know, core earnings growth. And so, and most of the companies pay out um, 100% of core earnings. And when they don't have those core earnings, to Adam's point, that's when they um, cut dividends. And we, we see that, you know, universally. I mean, it's, again, this has been going on. We have a, and the REITs, REITs were founded in 1960. So we can go all the way back to the 60s. In fact, um, when REITs were just formed, it was actually a large majority of the constituents in the REIT sector were mortgage REITs. And, and none of those are around today. Um, and now, again, we've got the residential and the commercial uh, brands. But I did want to point something out because, you know, you we, we own some commercial mortgage REITs and we don't recommend to me, it's it, again, it's kind of like a prefer, I, I look at commercial mortgage REITs like preferreds on steroids. So you get an income, high degree of income. And I want to point out, I just pulled up uh, on the NAREIT. Anybody can go to NAREIT.com and find this information. But right now there are 14 commercial mortgage REITs with an average dividend yield of 9.9%. And the home financing or the residential mortgage REITs, there's 21 constituents that generate dividend yield, average dividend yield is 11, uh, 11%. Interestingly enough, the year-to-date performance for the combined residential and commercial mortgage rate sector through August 31st, 2020 is negative 35%. Now let's put that in context to the average performance within the equity universe, which uh, again, does not include mortgage REITs is an average of minus 10%. Now we could break it down and I won't do that because it'll take us forever, but you know, data centers obviously up 32%, no surprise. Some of the other sectors that we, we see a lot of growth and less uh, risk for uh, COVID-19 or sectors like industrial, which has returned 11, almost 12%. Um, so an infrastructure is up 14%. Um, so again, the mortgage REIT sector is a lot more volatile, but I want to point, the last point I want to make here is we've been tracking and we've actually developed a portfolio in 2013, which mirrors my personal investment portfolio. And, and I've asked, actually subscribers have asked me to put together my whole portfolio, which I need to do that. And I will do that for Dividend Kings members, but I have a, what's called the durable income portfolio, which again, goes back to, uh, um, 2013 was the first, very first purchase. And it has very few, if any, I mean, I don't think I have any mortgage REITs in that 
sector. We had Jernigan Capital at one time, but we sold out of that. Um, I think we have Ladder in there. So we do have Ladder, and I think that's it. Maybe Blackstone, maybe, but very modest, modest exposure, um, under 5% exposure. What we've done within this durable income portfolio is we picked companies that have durable sources of income. And that's the whole mantra of this portfolio. That's why we call it the durable income portfolio. We like for those models of repeatability, those companies that can increase earnings and dividends over time, dividends are safe, high quality, all the stuff we're preaching every week and every day, at Adam and, and Nick, uh, thanks to uh, you know, what, we're, what we're trying to build here on Dividend Kings. But my durable income portfolio, I'm, I'm not, you know, not to boast about it, but really just to make a point, has returned an average of 17.8% annually annually since 2013, August 2013, since we started tracking this portfolio. The top constituents in that portfolio consist of companies, number one pick, just wrote about it today, no surprise is realty income is the number one pick. Digital realty, um, essential property trust, which is a new REIT, but again, strong sources of income. Cyrus One, strong sources of repeatable income. So that, by comparison, and we have very, very modest exposure because we're just not in the market timing business. You know, I want to be a time in the market, not in the market timing business. And, and really, when you think about it, and I'm not trying to dis disparage anybody who is an analyst in mortgage REITs or who invests in mortgage REITs. Uh, but you really have to have some technical skills if you're going to be successful. Uh, you got to have a circle of competence. Most investors don't. I, I coach and, and tell the average, the average investor should not invest in mortgage REITs whatsoever, even commercial mortgage REITs to that extent. You've got to know what you're doing. You know, it's, it's fireworks. Be careful and know what you're doing. Uh, but for the average investor, I would really stay away from that, from that uh, sector. And, and, there, and, and so Nick, the answer is there are no sleep well at night REITs um, yet in, the, in, the, uh, in, the, uh, in our research uh, universe. Okay, yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of what I expected to hear. I guess um, I will uh, pass it back to Adam with one more question, but before I do that, I do want to highlight, you know, we've been talking about uh, Annaly, which is ticker symbol NLY. This is uh, the reason we're doing this, even though Brad says, you know, we obviously at IRE don't cover the residential space, but this is one of the most popular, uh, you know, kind of high yield investments that you see these people that are willing to chase yields. I did want to break down over the last 20 years, Adam mentioned Annaly is an annualized rate of return of 7.7%, but without the dividend in included, uh, that is a zero negative 0.9% return. So once again, without that dividend, you're not getting any return. And due to the fact that the dividend is unreliable, that makes it a very scary investment. Over the last 10 years, uh, you know, we see a 3% annualized return from Annaly but negative 7.4% without the dividend over the last five years, 6.7% annualized return, negative 4.4% without the dividend. So as you can see, the company isn't really making anything in terms of its equity. Uh, all of these, uh, the, over the last 20 years, annually has outperformed the S&P 500, but over the 10 and five year period, it has uh, underperformed uh, drastically. The S&P 500 has returned more than 12% over the last 10 years and five-year periods on an annual basis. And we do see that names like Realty Income, like Brad just mentioned, and uh, WP Carry, which is also one of our uh, favorite uh, equity REITs, both of these companies are outperforming uh, annually during these 10 and five-year periods as well. So, um, you know, as you can see, 
you don't kind of like Brad's California uh, trip to California analogy. You don't need to be investing in these risky investments to do well in the markets. Even if, if a high income is your priority, you can achieve that with a much safer investment vehicles. And it actually does look like we're running up against our time here. We are trying to be more uh, observant of that and everybody's time. We all know that time is money. So with that said, I, I will uh, end up shutting down this roundtable podcast uh, next week. We will probably stick to this sort of sector by sector breakdown. Hopefully we'll maybe offer a bearish opinion. I mean, excuse me, a bullish opinion next week. And uh, Adam and Brad and I will be able to offer uh, advice on and recommendations on sort of, uh, you know, bullish stocks to buy instead of telling people what to avoid. But with that in mind, I do hope that everybody learned something today. I know I certainly did. Uh, you know, as we always say, focus on the quality, focus on the valuation so that you can sleep well at night. And uh, unfortunately, that's just not the case with uh, the majority of these MREITs. So thanks everybody for stopping by and uh, we'll see you all next week. Mm -hmm.